I've got another patient coming in here in a few minutes, so. Of course, I won't take up much of your time. You're probably already familiar with our drug, MS Cotton. Used to treat severe pain, mainly patients with cancer. MS Cotton is a very good drug. So what Purdue did is they took the same system, uh, the cotton system, and they produced uh, opioid for chronic and moderate pain. I would never prescribe a narcotic for moderate pain. There's a pretty long history down here of pill abuse. Less than 1% of people get addicted to Oxycontin. That's not possible. But it is. The FDA actually created a special label to say that it's less addictive than other opioids. Right there. That's a scene from the new TV series on Hulu called Dope Sick, in which a sales rep for Purdue Pharma tries to convince a country doctor, played brilliantly by Michael Keaton, that the new opioid drug the company was pushing, OxyContin, was safe, effective, and most importantly, non-addictive. The claim was, not to put too fine a point on it, a lie, made all the more egregious that it was blessed by an FDA official who later goes to work for, you guessed it, Purdue Pharma. It is only one of the many outrages that Dopesick relates as it tells the story of how one of the country's biggest drug companies, owned and controlled by the billionaire Sackler family, hooked hundreds of thousands of Americans on a dangerous narcotic, resulting in untold tragedies of addiction, suicides, and overdose deaths that swept through much of the country in the early 2000s. We'll talk to Danny Strong, the director and writer of Dopesick, and to Beth Macy, the journalist who wrote the book upon which the series is based, and we'll check in on the latest on the Steve Bannon indictment and what it means for the January 6th committee on this episode of Skullduggery. I do solemnly swear that I will faithfully execute the office of President of the United States. And will, to the best of my ability, preserve, protect, and defend the Constitution of the United States. So help me God. 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 I'm Michael Isikoff, Chief Investigative Correspondent for Yahoo News. I'm Dan Clydman, Editor-in-Chief of Yahoo News. And I'm Victoria Bassetti, a fellow at the Brennan Center for Justice. So many years ago, I was the drug reporter for the Washington Post, in which I spent a lot of time tracking the crack epidemic of the uh, late 1980s, 1990s that was sweeping through inner cities and wrote a lot about how the drug lords in South America, the Medellin cartel, the Cali cartel, were targeting inner city neighborhoods, a population that they thought would be most vulnerable to this highly addictive form of cocaine, and very successfully, uh, you know, hooked um, large chunks of inner city neighborhoods all over. And I couldn't help but be thinking about that as I'm watching Dopesick, in which Purdue Pharma, a a legal drug company is basically doing the same thing. They're targeting a different population. It was mostly, you know, rural America, coal mining country where they know there are lots of coal mining accidents and know that there's people suffering from pain and they're getting them hooked on a drug that was every bit as addictive and every bit as dangerous as crack cocaine was in the 1990s. Yeah, white-collar drug lords with museum wings named after them. Yeah. I mean, first of all, uh, this uh, 
uh, Dope Sick series is unbelievably powerful. Just the human story, the toll that this uh, drug took on these communities, you know, ravaging significant parts of rural America. What's interesting here is that the United States government, you know, reacted to the cartels uh, moving drugs into American cities with a lot of certainty. They, they knew how to do it. They targeted drug dealers. They targeted the cartels. There, of course, were huge excesses, and they also yeah, targeted really, a lot of users. It was, it was the most aggressive law enforcement activity in the country for many years. Right. But a significant you know. part of the story here is that the government does not know how to deal with a major drug company with with American corporations does not uh, know or doesn't want to. Well, that's know, the you, right. That is yeah. that's the question. And certainly one of the things that this series shows and a lot of the other reporting that has been done on Purdue Pharma and OxyContin is a certain level of complicity, if that's not too strong a word on the part of the government because you know, the FDA for example was toothless in its regulation, was vulnerable to pressure, and in some cases, the FDA regulator who wrote the label was corrupt, uh, or at least it certainly sounds like it, um, part of that revolving door that we have seen um, in so many other industries. It's a uh, complicated story and a tragic story, and there are a lot of people to blame for um, how it's played out. So I I binge-watched this series because I couldn't kind of glance away from it. I found it so engrossing and heartbreaking. And one of the fascinating things about it is, is that it covers a period of time from, you know, like the mid 90s till around 2007. And the effort to deal with this crisis and to hold these kind of white collar drug lords accountable continues to this day. And still in fits and starts, because within the last few weeks, two of the major efforts to hold a different company than Purdue Pharma accountable for its role in the opioid crisis stumbled in Oklahoma and California, where courts dismissed lawsuits that were attempting, as I say, to to hold them accountable. And what is amazing about this is, is that it's a 30, at least a 30 year tale of abuse that that continues to this very day with and and by no the way a, a bankruptcy settlement I believe in in uh, by a judge in New York that immunizes the Sackler family the owners of Purdue Pharma against liability for their role in this tragedy uh, there's still I guess the possibility of of criminal sanctions uh, we'll get into that um, with Danny Strong and, and Beth Macy but um, who knows if that'll ever happen yeah and you know back when I was covering the illegal drug trade in the 80s and 90s if there were setbacks like in that recent Oklahoma ruling where the uh, verdict against it was Johnson and Johnson, not Purdue Pharma, was overturned. Congress would react. <laughs> they would pass laws to make sure that didn't happen again. And by the way, they would also jack up sentences for people who uh, run afoul of the laws. And that's what gave us the era of mandatory minimums. But you don't see that happening when it's a big pharma company. And one uh, one last point on uh, this, uh, Mike. Uh, yeah. You know you making the distinction between um, a uh, corporation that was peddling uh, drugs in rural America and you know, South America-based uh, cartels that were doing it in the inner cities. 
The irony here is that what Purdue Pharma was doing in rural America would eventually pave the way for these cartels to start sending heroin back into those very same communities because, you know, over time, people moved from Oxycontin to fentanyl and finally to heroin to get, you know, stronger and bigger highs. Yeah, I mean, the uh, uh, Oxycontin was sort of the gateway drug to heroin, although it was pretty bad drug in and of itself and, and uh, ruined a lot, of, a lot of lives on its own. But before we get to Danny Strong and Beth Macy, uh, we do have to bring our loyal listeners up to date on the Steve Bannon indictment and what that means for January 6th. We're going to talk to John Ward in a moment, but I'd like to get your take on this, Victoria, because what it occurs to me, Bannon has now made it clear he's uh, going to plead not guilty. He hasn't formally entered that plea yet, but he will. Uh, And he says, you ain't seen nothing yet. We're going to, this is, we're going to push back. I think that there's a good chance that Bannon and the Trump people may be playing this committee because, yeah, they'll fight in the courts, both in the criminal case and, you know, Trump with his uh, civil suit challenge to the executive privilege claims. And they'll play it out. But at the end of the day, as I was saying in our last episode, I think it's very likely that what the committee is going to get is not wholesale Bannon and Meadows and all the rest of them have to testify to everything and turn over everything. It's going to come down to that case by case, document by document review. Remember, what Bannon did was he just gave his middle finger to the committee and said, I'm not even going to show up. You know, when the committee was saying, well, you could show up and invoke privilege on certain questions, certain documents, and Bannon said, no, I'm not going to do that. So he's playing the long game here, stretching this out, and at the end of the day, you know, when they finally get to it, that's what Bannon will have to do. It'll be a case-by-case, document-by-document inquisition that could drag on for months and months. Yeah, it's kind of one of those heartbreaking things about the way our democracy works today, which is that the the people who are willing to kind of thumb their noses at the rule of law and to just kind of behave in a lawless manner can, you know, essentially outmaneuver anyone who's trying to play by the rules and who's trying to play it down the middle. And, you know, I, I'm considering at least, you know, two things. The, the, the other thing is, you know, Bannon at the end in his press conference said something to me that was really chilling. He, uh, he says, stand by, which kind of had echoes of that old thing that Trump did to the uh, Proud Boys, right? Remember, stand down and stand by. It was like he was, he was basically signaling all of his worst supporters, his most dangerous you know, kind of January 6th adjacent supporters to rally to his cause. Meanwhile, you know, members of the January 6th committee and their staff are um, scrupulously dotting I's, crossing T's, and checking subsections of the U.S. code to see whether or not they're doing everything precisely according to form. I hear what you're saying, Mike, about, you know, a case-by-case, document-by-document kind of inquisition that'll take a long time. But 
it seems to me, and we'll get into this with John Ward, who's been covering this uh, for Yahoo News, but it seems to me that one of the reasons that they went after Bannon so aggressively was because the committee felt like it was on the strongest legal ground uh, with him because he has not been a, a member of the administration since 2017. And so the issue of executive privilege and what he's covered by uh, may be more clear cut. And I see what you're saying about the, the individual documents, but how does that apply to testimony? I well, mean, question, it, the question. Know. I can't. Right. I, so, can't but, but, I can't give you the answer to that. Right. Because but he'll have to appear. But he would. But he would have to appear. He would. You know, and he appear. may not be able to right. answer everything. But so at some point he's going to have to appear, and I don't think he'd be able to drag that out forever. Although no, no, I still. No, but he declines to answer particular questions, and now maybe the courts will figure out a way to expedite this. But at the end of the day, I can't imagine that they're going to decree that there's no executive privilege for president for a for a former president for a former president for a former president's conversations with someone who doesn't work for the government. I think it's possible that they that they'll find that there's no executive privilege in that situation. So but we'll Mike, see. Let me let me turn the tables on this with you real quickly. So as a reporter, I, I have to imagine there have been plenty of times when you've dealt with kind of lawless people who lie and make things up and answer 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 <laughs> Most half of the time. Answer answer, <laughs> That's answer, my ha- job. answer yeah. half of your questions, refuse yeah. to answer other questions, right. and yet you still pursue it based on your kind of, you know, with your journalistic principles and try to write stories. So, you know, kind of based on your own experience, don't can't you imagine a way in which the January 6th committee could still tell a story and come to a conclusion? Oh, well, they're going to tell a story and they're going to come to a conclusion. The question is, are they going to learn important new information from these completely resistant witnesses? And, you know, unless there are emails, unless there are memos that we haven't seen, they're not going to get anything out of these people, you know, unless they can be confronted with something that contradicts what they want to say. Right. So. You know, we'll see. I I doubt Bannon is a prolific email user or text messenger. So absent that, even if ordered to testify, uh, he'll be a completely recalcitrant witness who will um, use it as a political soapbox. But look, that's not a reason to go through the exercise. I get where the committee is coming from. I'm a little dubious that they're going to get as far as, you know, some people would like them to get. But we'll talk to John Ward in a minute about that. But before we do, and we've got a lot on the show today because we've got a great discussion of Dopesick coming up. We do want to take note of today is the third anniversary of what was, I think, one of our, may to this day be our most popular episode, uh, which was our interview with George Conway, in which he used a phrase that he reminded us of in a uh, DM just today, that today was the anniversary. We have the clip. Mark, you want to play it? I don't forget what part time of year it was. it was. No, it was like late April. Man, I'm thinking, I'm watching this thing, and you know, it's like the administration is like a shit show in a dumpster fire. And I'm like, I don't want to do that. I don't know. 
a shit show in a dumpster fire. You know, in retrospect, it would have been a great title for one of the many books of the Trump era. And just a little context there, what we were grilling him on at that point was he had been offered the job of assistant attorney general for the civil division in the Justice Department. And um, everybody, there was a lot of expectation he was going to take it. His wife was the counselor to the president. And um, he was explaining why he chose not to do so. One of his wiser decisions, I'd have to say. Yeah. Couple of things. First of all, Conway had not given any interviews about uh, the Trump administration um, up until that point, but he had uh, been increasingly vocal in criticizing Trump on Twitter. And of course, this became a subject of great fascination and kind of a parlor game in, in Washington, trying to understand it because he was, you know, he's married to Kellyanne Conway, who was uh, Trump's uh, top, you know, kind of communications person. And then the other bit of context is that, you know, we had a long history, you in particular, Mike, with George Conway because of his role behind the scenes in the uh, Paula Jones lawsuit against Bill Clinton, which, of course, led to the Monica Lewinsky investigation. And it's particularly relevant at this moment because a lot of people have been watching American Crime Story Impeachment, this FX series on the Lewinsky case in which both you, Isakoff, and George Conway are um, important characters. So <laughs> all of that makes it even more relevant uh, today. Uh, yeah. This third anniversary. Well, we've already, yeah. <laughs> we, well, we've already done the uh, American Crime Story impeachment series, so we don't need to revisit that. Well, I, I was just going to say, mostly I'm struck by the uncanny skill, not only of George Conway, but of Kellyanne Conway to extricate themselves from involvement with the Trump administration just in time to avoid subpoenas. By the way, the job that he was offered as assistant attorney general. Yeah, I know where you're going with that, this. Yeah. Isn't that the job that one Jeffrey Clark was <laughs> Jeffrey holding Clark. in an acting capacity when exactly. he was trying to implement the yeah. coup that yeah. uh, Trump and because was of, uh, And because seeking. of all their family drama, Kellyanne Conway left the White House just yeah. in time to avoid getting dragged into the election and to the January 6th fiasco. All right, we got Ward here. Last so, point before yeah. we go to Ward, because you mentioned uh, Jeffrey Clark. We have talked about a uh, member of Congress from Pennsylvania named Scott Perry. He's a conservative. He Scott Perry was just uh, elected to be chairman of the the uh, Republican the Freedom Caucus, the hard most right. hard yeah. right. Yeah, uh, and it was it was Perry who introduced Donald Trump to Jeffrey Clark. And was then being considered to be pen acting pals. attorney general. And, yeah, and pen pals, exactly. So anyway. All right. Let's bring in Ward. Okay, we are now joined by our Yahoo News colleague, John Ward, who was in the courtroom uh, when Steve Bannon made his initial appearance on Monday. And then outside the courtroom, when uh, Bannon began his uh, PR offensive against the uh, criminal charge standing against him. John, welcome back to Skullduggery. Hey, guys. How's it going? It is um, going very well for us. The question is, how is it going for Steve Bannon? And um, you were there. Tell us what happened, both inside and outside the courtroom, and how this is likely to play out in the coming weeks and months. Yeah, I mean, 
I think anyone who understands who who is familiar with Steve Bannon at all would not be surprised to to see what happened on Monday. He basically used the uh, occasion of his indictment and his appearance in court to wage a PR offensive, as you called it almost, you know, and so it's, he's, he's a master of propaganda. He's a master of sort of weaponizing information and weaponizing communications and alternative media over the internet. And he used it uh, for, for all it was worth. One of the most telling details to me was that when he got out of the SUVs to turn himself in at the FBI field office before being taken over to the federal courthouse, he was surrounded by a mob of cameras and reporters and photographers. Somebody taps him on the shoulder and he turns to a specific video camera, which has a, you know, a great boom mic that picks up his voice loud and clear. And he goes, is this us? Which indicates that they had planned out ahead of time, obviously to kind of record a video and audio as he's surrounded by this, this maelstrom. And he kind of starts, you know, giving a rah-rah speech to his supporters. You know, he says, this is noise, focus on the signal, and kind of casts himself as this uh, quasi-hero, martyr, um, you know, warrior in a, in a political effort. And so, you know, as this, is, as this is happening, you know, the TV networks are all yelling for him to come over to their cameras. And of course, he could care less about that. He was speaking directly to a, a live stream of the War Correct. Room, uh, which his is podcast. his right. his his podcast, which presumably is all, also on video, so he's speaking yeah. directly yes. to his followers. Now, right. of course, that's what we would do if we were indicted. We would be talking to skullduggery <laughs> listeners uh, outside the courtroom. But John, that's the PR strategy. What's the legal strategy? He's under indictment. What's the legal? strategy he and his lawyers are going to pursue here uh the legal strategy is to try to is going to almost certainly going to be to try to string this out i think and i mean i don't have direct knowledge of this but um you know try to string this out if the legal process takes longer than you know a year i'm i guess i guess it doesn't matter if the january 6th committee is disbanded by republicans if they take the house i guess this process has begun and so it's going to be seen through to the end and so I think it's possible he does see jail time, I guess. Um, but I think even that would be something that he could use to promote himself, to promote his cause, to kind of, uh, you know, burnish his image, burnish the myth of, of Steve Bannon. And of course, there's a there's a parallel process going on, right, where the courts are considering whether yeah. uh, he would be covered under an assertion of privilege by the former president, when the current president says it has waived any executive privilege. Right. And his lawyers are also going to argue that, you know, that process has not played itself out yet. And so he can't be compelled to uh, cooperate with the January 6th committee until that process has been resolved. That's kind of, that's kind of one of the things they said yesterday. Well, except there, there are two questions, right? The first is whether or not Trump continues to have executive privilege or whether or not President Biden has the ability to waive it. And then the second question is whether or not someone who was not an employee of the executive branch during the operative time could even assert executive privilege at all. So they could they can assume for purposes of argument that Trump does have executive privilege and conclude nevertheless that because Bannon wasn't an employee of the executive branch, it's it's irrelevant. 
Well, no, I mean, there is some uh, precedent in Justice Department policy for extending executive privilege to people outside the executive branch. Uh, this was done in 2007 by um, Paul Clement uh, when he was, uh, I think, acting attorney general. And uh, and I've written about this. I actually can't remember who they extended it to. But, you know, there is some precedent for it. But I've spoken to, you know, some of the top legal scholars on this. And I think that was it, by the way, I think that was in the case of the firings of uh, the, the U.S. attorneys during the Bush administration. Right. I believe that's right. Yeah. But I still don't remember which individual they were saying was covered. But nonetheless, I mean, there's obviously, you know, this is why it took them a couple of weeks to charge Bannon at DOJ is because it's not as open and shut as some people would like it to be. But legal scholars generally believe that that it is a pretty strong case against him, that he is guilty of contempt of Congress, in part because of uh, executive privilege only extends to the official duties uh, of a president and not to political or personal duties. There's also a second theory of the case, isn't there, which is that his his failure to physically appear to assert those privileges is also in itself contempt of Congress. Yeah, I'm not as familiar with that argument. Um, yeah. I mean, th- they have to they have to find that he's guilty of contempt and that he had criminal intent as well. That's also another important thing to remember that they have to prove criminal intent. He sort of demonstrated that, didn't he, in all of his uh, statements that he made on the courthouse, <laughs> in the front of the courthouse, didn't he? I don't know. I mean, he's very careful in kind of keeping his comments sort of off topic in a way. He talked about like defeating China yesterday. He talked about economic numbers. He did talk about taking down the illegitimate Biden regime. I think that may have been a little bit of a, of a mistake on his part. But even on his podcast, which I've done some listening to, he kind of lets other people do a lot of the opining and, and kind of uh, and I think he's been very careful to try to deprive prosecutors of ammunition they might use against him in trying to prove intent. Yeah, but I mean, most most lawyers, most defense attorneys would be just like begging him to shut up right now, though, wouldn't they? Why would Steve Bannon under any circumstances want to shut up? This is his this is his life. You know, he lives for these things. Uh, And just let's remember, as I pointed out in the last episode as well, there's a Trump, you know, he lucked out on the judge. He's got a Trump appointee who was a former Clarence Thomas clerk overseeing his case. And at the end of the day, you know, the the rulings on executive privilege are going to come from the Supreme Court with a 6-3 conservative majority. I, well, here's a, wait, yeah. I just got one question here. I'm still trying to understand what the end game is for the with Bannon for the January 6th committee, because, OK, he's been indicted. Let's say he's convicted um, and sentenced. Um, he's not going to serve a long sentence. As you point out, he's looking to be a martyr here, you know, well, he, he can. I mean, the judge could say, I'm going to sentence you to a year in jail unless you go up there and testify. Right. Well, that's right? the question. Right, right, that's right. the question. And I, I mean, don't know is, whether Bannon would want to spend a year in D.C. jail, which from all I read is not the most pleasant so place in the world right. to be. Right. Yeah. So at the end of the day, this still is an effort. This is still leverage to try to get testimony out of uh, Steve Bannon or, or documents or, or whatever it is he has. Going back to the judge, John, what do we know about Judge Nichols? I mean, just what you said. He's appointed by Trump. I didn't even know he was a Thomas appoint, uh, a Thomas clerk. So you know more about him than I do. I mean, it just reminds me of a lot of the rulings on the voter fraud 
allegations from the 2020 election, so many of which were, were struck down by Trump appointees. I think it just strengthens the case in the public uh, arena, in the public square. You know, whatever the decision is, it, it kind of it makes it more trustworthy, I think, if you have a Trump Not, not if he goes easy on Bannon. That that won't be perceived as Correct. more trustworthy. Correct. Yeah. Yep. His point is not to expect that, even if even if he was appointed by Donald Trump. Yeah, I think I think the facts are pretty clear in this case. I don't expect the judge to go easy on him. Last question. What do we think Bannon knows? Yeah, I mean, it's interesting if you kind of it's amazing how much detail about Bannon's role came out of uh, Bob Woodward and Robert Costa's book. Um you know, there's there so many of the relevant details about his role are in, come from that reporting. And, you know, we all know he spoke to Trump on, on December 30th, urged him to come back to D.C. It appears that the focus on overturning the election kind of came out of that New Year's Eve period and New Year's Day, because uh, the Eastman memo, as far as I can tell, started getting circulated around January 2nd or so. And and so, you know, Bannon's at the Willard on January 5th plotting with Giuliani. He says that day all hell is going to break loose. You know, he he makes other comments that day that don't appear to be referring to legislators that seem to be referring to people outside the building, you know, be taking part in a revolution. So there's the, the component of him talking to Trump talking to Giuliani, talking to others, you know, the night before, I just, I still don't have a good sense of like how much of the mayhem that happened on January 6th could have been expected. I mean, I, I, I just don't know. I don't think, I think the question with, with, uh, with Bannon is always, you know, how much of it is bluster and, yeah. and posturing and, and, you know, wanting to be, you know, and, and being a bomb thrower, I mean, figuratively. All hell and how much is going it, to break loose. That's the way yeah. Bannon speaks. Yeah. So you so just speaks don't. about everything. That's true. Yeah. Right. So, yeah. yeah. Um, so anyway, well, uh, John, um, you will no doubt continue to um, be covering this and we will no doubt want to yeah, continue to um, have you back. If I can say one more thing, I mean, I think your point about using this as leverage to get him to testify is a, is a good point. And I think for him going through this legal process is kind of a PR, you know, stunt. It's an, it's an aid to him. And I think it might not be an unattractive option for him to go through that and then say, okay, I'll go to testify. And he, if he goes up there to testify, he can just, he's going to do the same thing in that process. Right. Also, but we, we really shouldn't lose sight of the fact that, that while Bannon may see a way to turn this to his advantage, there are a lot of other people who the committee who've subpoenaed who, who don't feel this way and who will take the threat of a criminal contempt conviction or indictment very seriously. And it will frighten them enough that they might show up and testify. Yeah, and there was some indication. I mean, not a lot, but Peter Navarro, one of one of Bannon's regular, a, a, somebody who's on his podcast a lot, was was complaining about Kevin McCarthy's uh, you know decision to pull all the Republicans, other than Trump and or other than Ch- Liz Cheney and uh, Adam Kinzinger, off the January sixth committee yesterday. Uh, Navarro was was complaining about that in a way that made it seem like there's you know he said that McCarthy lost control of the committee so I think I think the fact that the committee's moving quickly issuing subpoenas very expeditiously and and really kind of moving at a rapid pace to get the some at least this one uh, criminally prosecuted 
seems to have gotten under the skin of, of some of, of Bannon's acolytes there. Well, we'll see. Uh, as Before you came on, I was making the point that I think uh, some of these people, including Bannon, may be playing the committee, going through the process, knowing that at the end of the day, or suspecting that at the end of the day, when the Supreme Court gets through with the executive privilege arguments, it's not going to be a wholesale victory for the committee. It's going to come down to a document-by-document, question-by-question analysis, and that holds the potential to really drag this thing out so the committee never really gets to what it wants. But that's my, um, well, uh, that's the way it looks to me. I'm, I obviously, it will look differently to other people. And that's John? How, that's Justice Isikoff's rule. Yeah, yeah. That's, <laughs> yeah. I mean, no, there's, I, there's some people who have said they should have <laughs> issued a more precise and narrow request yeah. rather than the broad request that they did, and, and that might end up being a problem. You're right. Yeah. Okay. All right, John, we will uh, no doubt be uh, having you back as you continue to cover this. Thanks a lot. Okay, we now have with us Danny Strong, the director and writer of Dope Sick, and Beth Macy, the author of the book Dope Sick, upon which the series was based. Danny and Beth, welcome to Skullduggery. Hello. Thanks for having us. Thanks. Well, it's an honor to have both of you. Such a powerful series uh, with so many ramifications. Danny, you've done a lot in your TV movie career. What prompted you to want to tell this pretty dark story? Well, I I was at the time looking to do another true life story that had a muckraking quality like I did with Recount and Game Change. I specifically wanted to do that type of project. And then John Goldwyn, this producer, came to me and said, do you want to write and direct a movie on the opioid crisis? And so I started, I thought, well, you know, I said, that's exactly the kind of thing I'm looking to do. And then the more I started researching it, the more I fell down into this rabbit hole of horror and shock and dismay at what this criminal company, Purdue Pharma, had done. I just couldn't believe it. I couldn't believe uh, the extent of their criminal behavior. And I thought there could be a, a really powerful story here. And then when I connected up with Beth Macy and her really beautiful book on the subject uh, that got into the victims and really was on the ground with the people that, that suffered because of Purdue's deception, it just seemed like a wonderful way to put this whole show together to tell the story of the crimes, the story of the victims, the story of Purdue, and ultimately the story of the revolving door and how our government institutions, you know. Right. Definitely want to get into the revolving door because that's so central to what happened here. But the the human story of what happens to the people in this small town, rural town in Virginia, who become hooked from the daughter of the coal miners, coal mining family who works in the mines, to the doctor, played brilliantly by Michael Keaton, who begins prescribing Oxycontin and then becomes hooked himself and addicted. Beth, you lived in coal country, Virginia. You reported on many people who suffered from this plague. How real are those stories that are told in Dope Sick? Are there real life people who match the ones we're seeing on the screen? 
absolutely their real life. And I kind of came to the story backwards. I was a newspaper reporter in Roanoke, which is, you know, about four hours from the coal fields of Appalachia. And when I started writing about it, it had morphed from an Oxycontin epidemic or painkiller pill epidemic to a heroin epidemic in the late aughts. Um, but when I decided to turn the series I did for my paper about basically wealthy white suburbanite teenagers doing heroin and everybody was like, oh my God, really? I turned that series into a story, a book uh, that came out in 2018. And in order to fully tell that, I had to go back and say, how did Oxycontin get here? And nobody had written about it for years at that point. You know, there's been a lot of great journalism since then, but I basically went back to the first people on the ground. I mean, the first doctor, and he's featured in episodes six through eight, Dr. Art Manzee, to pick up the phone and call Purdue and say, hey, I know it says here in your insert that OxyContin is virtually non-addictive, but I got kids overdosing in the high school library that I immunized as babies. I've got farmers, miners, people, tough people who've had workplace injuries all the time and have successfully taken and gotten off Percocet and Vicodin, lower milligram uh, opioids. But this drug, OxyContin, it has ruined their life. And so when I first set out to tell the, the 2018 book, Dope Sick, I wanted to go back and see how they were now. And, and how they were now wasn't good. If you haven't passed through rural America recently, these towns, especially the towns that have also been waylaid by jobs going overseas or technology and job losses, that's where that company pushed the hardest. And they will be generations coming back. Well, let's talk about for a moment uh, the company and the family behind the company, the Sacklers. So Danny, uh, when you were beginning to do your, your research, presumably Soon enough, you started to learn about the Sackler family. And I guess I'm interested in in the sort of descent into the kind of conduct that they you know were responsible for that that led to so many of these so much of this tragedy, and how that happened. Was it a something that happens happens over time? where there's a whole bunch of sort of rationalization that goes on? Or, you know, did they know what they were doing at the outset? Talk about that process. Well, I would argue that they knew what they were doing at the outset, and and it was deliberately planned out to a T. Uh, They had this label that said the drug, an FDA warning label that said the drug was less addictive than other opioids. I'm paraphrasing it, but that was the essence of the label. And they fought hard for that label. And then simultaneously, while they're fighting hard to get that label, there's this movement that's occurring, which is redefining the nature of pain, uh, turning pain into the fifth vital sign, having a, a new understanding of the use of opioids, trying to redefine the use of opioids as less addictive than everyone had always thought they had been, that they're actually safe now. So this all coincides at the same time, these independent pain societies, are putting all this information out there while Purdue Pharma is pursuing this new label that coincides with exactly what these pain societies are putting out there. And then lo and behold, these independent pain societies are not so independent. They're either partially or fully financed by Purdue Pharma. So it's an extremely coordinated con where all of it comes together so that Purdue can then, once the drug is ready for market, They've got their warning label from the FDA. The guy that uh, approves that warning label 
18 months later, goes to work for Purdue. So uh, I think it, it has this perception that it was, that there's some sort of corruption there of uh, you get a job at four times your salary for this warning label. And then they're off to the races. Uh, marketing this drug is less addictive. And then in order to market a drug that's less addictive, that in fact is not less addictive, well, you have to create a bunch of information to show that this lie is true. So that means that information, well, that's a lie as well. And that's what we show throughout the course of the series, fake blood charts, fake studies, uh, citing studies that in fact never exist. And the deception and the manipulation is so staggering. That's what inspired me to write the show. I just couldn't believe it. I mean, when I got to the point where they had manipulated blood charts uh, by changing the spacing on the column to give the appearance that this drug did not have, quote, peaks and valleys the way all other opioids do, but it had this magical plateau. Well, in fact, it didn't have a plateau. They had to manipulate the side of the graph to give it a plateau effect. And there, to me, that is a certain level of deception that I think you can only, that I can only define as evil. And that that deception is, is why we have the opioid crisis. That's how, it, that's how it happened, is that doctors believed this drug was safe because they were given all of this information. They were reading articles in independent uh, journals that were, these articles came from these pain societies that, as I said before, were all, were all financed by Purdue. So it's this entire shell game uh, that led to one of the worst health crises in the history of this country. And meanwhile, they're also being, the doctors are also being wined and dined and taken on all expenses, paid uh, trips uh, to uh, conferences in, in nice places, all at the expense of Purdue Pharma. Yeah, with those conferences, people, um, this, the prescribing by doctors that went to the conferences was double that of people that didn't. So clearly, uh, it, it was effective. So the kind of third link in this chain has to do with the kind of the government officials who are ostensibly there to protect the American public from these sort of practices. And aside from the kind of revolving door people, the the one kind of theme that sort of comes through is how overmatched the good people within the government are when they're trying to catch the the overprescription or the manipulation. Tell us a little bit more about how you kind of uncovered the ability of Purdue Pharma to, to just completely outgun the regulators. Well, we had this great story of a DEA agent who was, I think, the first person to really go after them from a federal level. Played um, by Rosario Dawson in the uh, Such a badass. And so that was one of our stories. And then the other story was a story that had happened in the region where I live. And so it was really close to my heart and Danny's too. And that's the story of the U.S. Attorney John Brownlee and his two chief assistants who were basically career lawyers. Weren't out, Brownlee was kind of out to make a name for himself, thinking of running for governor. But these two guys, they're working out of a strip mall kind of bureau up in Abingdon, Virginia, which is this charming, very small town. And they basically go after these billionaires from a strip mall. And what you see when they buried them in the evidence, Danny had, I had interviewed one of them, Danny interviewed them both. I mean, it, it's absolutely true. All the details of that. Let's just drill down on this revolving door phenomenon that's so central to this story. Now, the guy in question is Curtis Wright is the FDA official 
who gives the um, Oxycontin the FDA's blessing, says it's, ex- I think the wording is exceedingly rare to, uh, in uh, terms uh, of addiction. Reports of right? abuse are believed to be rare. Believed uh, Michael, be believed by who? Who, who yeah, yeah, I, you yeah. know, it's okay. so vague. It's so All right. And then he goes to work for Purdue Pharma. So there you have it. Yeah, one sort of thought that popped into my head when I went to the screening, probably not one, you know, that you'll want to hear is, oh my God, you are going to give anti-vaxxers a new reason to not want to get vaccinated for COVID because how can you trust the FDA? What would you say to somebody who you know, makes that point to you. You've just documented how we sure. can't trust the FDA. Why should we all trust them right now? So I would I would say two things. First off, I would say that if I were to write a TV show or a movie about the vaccine, it would be about the hero doctors that developed this drug that saved the world. I think uh, the vaccine is is I I still can't believe that it exists and happens so uh, fast and so eternally grateful uh, for this vaccine. And I would also say that the story of the vaccine is not an FDA story; it's a worldwide story. It is every country in the world. Almost every country in the world has has tested, approved. Uh, we've got data on this vaccine from hundreds of millions of people, not from one organization that was where they got this unusual wording by one person that went to go work for the company that, that did the wording. So I think that they are completely different. Um, I will say that with anti-vaxxers, I don't think they needed our show to uh, use right. as a piece of propaganda. I think that they're going to be as uh, they're going to say whatever they want to to get right. their points. And, and look, I, I'm not arguing the point. I'm just saying, you know, from a, a first blush impressions, you know, I, I have heard the family members who are on the left who have been reluctant to get vaccinated saying, you know, we can't trust the government and we can't trust big pharma either. And I think, you know, both would have those views. You know, those views would be reinforced by anybody watching this um, this series. Can we just stay on Curtis right for another beat here? Because I want to understand how how this happened and uh, what the kind of lack of checks and balances within the FDA that would allow this one individual essentially <laughs> to approve this drug that ended up being so so deadly. I mean, as I understand it, he wasn't really looking at clinical trials. Is that right? I, I think I read that. He wasn't looking at clinical trials because they didn't exist. They didn't exist. And he was working also directly with... Yeah, he, 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 he met with Purdue yeah. uh, for several days in a hotel room and helped them write their wording of their application, highly unusual. Uh, and then under oath, he has been asked if he actually wrote the wording of the warning label. And under oath, he didn't deny it. He said he might have. So he writes their review application. He very well may have written the label itself. And then he goes to work for them at four times the amount of money he was making before. Uh, so I, 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 by the way, I don't understand why there, there's not a criminal investigation of Curtis. Yeah, I was going to say, what's happened to him? Uh, I, he worked at for, for Purdue for many years, and I think he left. Beth, do you know, two thousand seven. He was a pharma consultant when I, when I found him on LinkedIn. I mean, the really interesting thing is that story. We're like, how are we going to tell it? We knew like the the big parts of it, but as we were in the room, like 
I think it was like three or four weeks before we got to that episode, somebody uh, formerly at the DOJ leaks us this six page uh, prosecution memo document that had the details about the hotel room right down the street from the FDA in Rockville and all the insights and uh, all, all the details. And, and that was, you're just like, wow, you, you can't believe this really happened. Here's sort of a, a, a just a crazy production story. So we had that, that leaked prosecution memo. It wasn't enough for the Hulu lawyers to feel comfortable dramatizing him in the room with the Purdue executives. They felt like it was only there was only a single source and it was a leaked memo. And so they asked me to cut the scene, but I kept the scene on the schedule because my plan was, well, I'm just going to shoot it. So I have it. And then we'll just see what happens. Right. So then um, about a week before I go to shoot the scene, Patrick Radin Keefe's book, Empire of Pain, comes out in which he covers that exact those exact series of meetings. I, uh, Beth sends me a picture of the book. I send it because I we didn't actually have the book. She just had an advanced copy. I send that page to Hulu's lawyers saying, is this enough? They said, yes, I shoot the scene. We put it in the show. So it was this sort of like saved by the bell right at the last minute by the book Empire Pain that came out. I don't know, uh, two weeks before we wrapped production. So one of the main themes of the series is this effort by the U.S. Attorney's Office in, in Virginia to kind of hold the, the Sackler family accountable. And I think for everyone who's been – and it ends in approximately 2007, I think. But I think for everyone who has been following this issue – Everyone is really aware that the, the effort to hold the various manufacturers and the kind of creators of the opioid crisis continues. I'm just sort of wondering, how could you draw a line in 2007? What more stories do you feel need to be told? Well, there was recently, um, they, they pleaded guilty twice, right? So they pleaded guilty to criminal misbranding, a felony in 07, and they Purdue, which is micromanaged by the Sackler family. They plead, the company pleads again, guilty to the same sort of fraud in 2020. And then quickly after, after they announced this like flashy, we're going to pay $8 billion that we don't have, by the way, uh, headline, then they file bankruptcy in White Plains, New York, where they have no business to speak of, uh, because there's a judge there that approves what's called a third-party release and allows the Sackler family to piggyback on Purdue's bankruptcy. And so when we talk about getting rid of the revolving door, I think bankruptcy reform is right up there on the list too. There's been a lot of efforts to to start this Sackler Act. There's a new Elizabeth Warren version of it. And um, we're really hopeful that our show will, you know, underscore those efforts. And Danny himself is going to be speaking at a rally in Washington on December 3rd. Do you want to talk about that? But just before you get to that, Danny, the bankruptcy settlement, under that settlement, the Sackler family has full legal immunity from all of the damage that OxyContin caused, uh, right? Not criminal immunity. Not criminal immunity. Right. Not criminal immunity. But my understanding is a criminal case is, I mean, going after the Sacklers criminally is not going to be easy. I don't understand that. Yeah. So I, I, this is all I hear over and over. It's a talking point, perfect segue of the December 3rd rally. It is going to be at the Justice Department. It is to plead to Lisa Monaco, the deputy attorney general, to pursue criminal charges against 
Richard Sackler, Maura Healy, the attorney general of Massachusetts, says she's seen enough evidence uh, that she believes uh, that he and a few other members of the family could and should be charged. There's also the entire prosecution memo from the 2007 case that we dramatize that has 120 pages of information. Uh, then there was the second guilty plea in 2020 for, in which they pled guilty to two more felonies. You've got a company that's pled guilty to three felonies. And yet the only charges for individuals have been three misdemeanors by top level executives that weren't even at the top of the level. That the, we, what's, What we've come to learn is that this company was micromanaged by members of the Sackler family, specifically Richard Sackler, Jonathan Sackler, and Kathy Sackler, along with Raymond and Mortimer Sackler, who have both passed away. Uh, they were they were much older. But but nonetheless, yeah, all I ever hear is it's, it's will be very hard. It'll be unlikely. And then I hear the attorney general of Massachusetts say, I've seen evidence. I've seen documents that feels like there's enough there to go after them. So I don't know why they're not. And I think I would plead with Lisa Monaco, the deputy attorney general, to pursue this. This is one of the greatest crimes that's ever been perpetrated on the American people. The devastation that it's wrought has been staggering for literally 20 people, maybe even less, to make billions of dollars. This destruction, it's its its an insane story. And I, I mean, I isn't the larger the larger meaning of all of this that like just corporate accountability in this country is very hard to come by? What kind of chilling effect is it going to have on other industries and corporations if, you know, uh, I think we have a quote. I can't remember what episode did it, but the corporation feels no pain. If executives don't go to jail, then these white collar guys are going to just keep doing it and looking at the fines as the cost of doing business. Now, the dad, Lisa Monaco, said in a speech she gave two weeks ago that she intends to go after white collar criminals. Here's your chance, Lisa. So let's talk about the Sacklers. You know, they're this fantastically wealthy family, billionaires, great benefactors of the arts. There's Sackler museums, you know, all over. They probably thought to themselves they were contributing to the public good. And you you don't believe so. No, uh, I mean, I don't on, on any level. <laughs> oh, well, I, as far as the drug Oxycontin. Well, um, OK, I, I was going to get to that. Richard yeah. Sackler, who is the the guy, the, the member of the family who drove this, yeah. you know, and saw this as a miracle drug that was going to cure the world from pain. You don't think that there was an element of self-delusion there that he actually believed a pain is a really bad thing and B, this drug can help a lot of people who suffer from pain, that that's what he convinced himself and was the reason he was pushing for this. Well, that's sort of one of the the journeys you follow in the show, right? Is is he telling himself this because he believes it to be true or is he just kind of telling, is this just the talking point? I think that you have to go back. What's the answer? Yeah. I think you have to go back to the big lie. Right, which is that a highly addictive drug is non-addictive, or less than one percent of people get addicted to this highly addictive drug. If he thought he was curing the world with pain, why did he have to lie about it? Why did he have to create so much deception around this lie? The drug oxycontin has very useful purposes for severe pain, for cancer pain, for um, post-surgery pain. Yeah, it's one of the reasons why. 
Um, the U.S. attorney didn't want to put the company out of business. He didn't want to put the drug out of business. There are actual good uses for this drug. Um, but what the drug isn't is, is non-addictive. And that's how this company that was micromanaged by this family pathologically marketed it. And no matter what information came their way, no matter what data came their way, no matter how many investigations, how many news stories came their way, um, they wouldn't budge. They would just try and hammer their way through it and maneuver through it through the highest levels of government so that they could keep selling. Here's an anecdote for you. At the end of this story, you know, our show ends with the 2007 settlement. All this data, massive investigation, guilty pleas, even if it's just misdemeanors that still their three top executives are now out of the company and they have $600 million in fines. So do they change their ways? Do they make adjustments? Do they try to reformulate the drug? No, they triple down. They sell harder than ever with these exact same tactics. When I read that, when I read that Richard Sackler was personally calling pharma reps and, and saying, you have to sell, 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 you have to push even harder. I thought, oh, this person must be a sociopath. You know, that was my analysis based upon an individual that would do what he did after all of this damage has been wrecked in all these communities for the last nine years does not care, sell, sell, sell. Where is Richard Sackler today? <laughs> what's he doing? And what's been his and the company's reaction to the series? Oh, well, they love it. You know, Richard loves it. It's, he's, he, all he does <laughs> is text me his favorite thing. Uh, I, from my understanding, he's in Austin, Texas. He's, I, from, from what I also understand, and this comes from the book Empire of Pain. He's he's pretty isolated at this point. There's he doesn't have a lot of allies or, or friends left, and you know he's very difficult to be around based on everyone I've spoken to that knew him. If you read his son's own personal emails that have come out in discovery about his father, he's clearly a a, a very difficult individual. So and and as far as their reaction to the show, I, I have no idea. But they do continue. Richard just recently testified before the bankruptcy court where he took zero responsibility for everything that has happened. So no contrition. They have not apologized for anything. Side note, by the way, on the uh, very clever decision to move to mm -hmm. Texas, because Texas, speaking of bankruptcy, has an unlimited homestead exemption. His son did so the same thing in Florida. So forced to declare actually reason. personal bankruptcy, he would be able to maintain a house and property as worth multi-millions of dollars if he feels like it. I want to actually just go go back in time a little bit with the Sacklers, because I thought one of the fascinating, I guess there were a, a few scenes in there um, in the series, was the portrayal of of uh, Arthur Sackler, the uh, the patriarch, and you have him testifying before Congress. He, of course, was a marketer, a pharmaceutical marketer, and he marketed Valium, I think. So that's really the roots of this company and this family fortune, is that at the end of the day, they were marketers, right? And tell us about, about Arthur and about the evolution of the family and the business. So, so Arthur was the oldest of the three brothers, and I think he personally put his younger two brothers through college and had a real rags to riches story. Um, Patrick Ryden Keefe's book goes into great detail about their immigrant father saying, you know, the one thing you can never, you can, you can lose a fortune and get it back, but you can never lose their name, your, na your good name, which is the ir irony of the story. But he basically uh, creates his own ad agency. He's responsible for making Valium, quote, mother's little helper, as the Rolling Stones sang. 
And the important thing to know is his wing of the family has said, hey, all this Hoxycontin news, we had nothing to do with that. Arthur died in 87, I think. And it's true. Oxycontin didn't come out till 1996. But what his younger brothers and Richard did was exactly Arthur Sacklow 101. They did the same marketing techniques that Arthur had invented down to the IMS Health Database where Purdue buys the data showing them which doctors in the country are most likely to prescribe Oxycontin and because they're already prescribing Percocet and Vicodin and then convert them to Oxy so they can make more money. Well, on the history, you've got the scene, the flashback to the Senate hearings in 1962 before Senator Kefauver, in which I guess it's Arthur Sackler testifying. Yeah. Yeah. What what was the drug then that got them hauled before a Senate committee? Uh, it was a series of drugs. Um, it was, I don't know, it was three or four different drugs that he was being grilled about. Some of the dialogue in the show is verbatim straight from the transcripts, literally just cut and paste from the transcripts. Valium was the one that had made the family fortune. So uh, they gave us Valium as well? Well, yeah, they, he, he didn't make Valium. He marketed it, but he got a percentage of it with his marketing techniques. So, so that made, that's what created the Sackler family fortune was his share of value for how he marketed it, coming on board to market the drug. One of his techniques was he would do these uh, testimonies of doctors. And when this investigative reporter was on to him in the early 60s, these doctors didn't even, even exist. Yeah, yeah. He, he's, uh, it's, well, you, if you study Arthur Sackler, Everything he did is what Richard Sackler perfected with the marketing and sales of OxyContin. But all these techniques of hiring an expert, having that expert write an article in a magazine, and then taking that magazine to a doctor and convincing the doctor the drug is safe when, in fact, the company itself hired the expert and that the magazine, in some cases, is partially owned by the company. It's this whole, it's that same grift I was talking about at the very beginning where the whole thing is an inside game uh, to convince doctors that drugs are safe and that experts have, have stood behind this information. So this is this has been the family playbook. And what's one of the reasons why I put the Kefauver hearing into the show is to show that, oh, uh, they're pharma grifters. They've been pharma grifting since the 1950s and the 1960s. I think it's called pattern and practice is the uh, yeah. magical phrase. Is an example of this kind of marketing, and I think from the series, it was the Purdue Pharma executives who came up with this, but this idea of breakthrough pain that you talk about. Talk, talk about breakthrough pain <laughs> and how that was important. Well, breakthrough pain was one of the things they came up with when they realized the drug wasn't lasting the full 12 hours. There's been some great reporting on that in the LA Times in recent years. But, uh, and it sort of goes hand in hand with double the dose, right? You know, you have this great scene in the show where, what are we gonna do? Where Kathy asks, what are we gonna do when 40 doesn't cut it anymore? Should we have somebody also prescribe a a 20 milligram or a 10 milligram Percocet? No, we'll double the dose. And what Arthur Sackler would have done is he would have come up with a fake condition. And the condition was breakthrough pain. Beth, can you explain how the widespread uh, prescriptions for OxyContin led directly to the surge in heroin abuse? Sure. 
Sure. So because it was so overprescribed, it was in like, you know, America's communal medicine cabinet, right? So when you and I were growing up, it was beer, maybe some weed, what have you. But when kids in the late 90s and early aughts were growing up, these pills were being passed around in, at parties, just as ac- exactly as, as we show it in, in the show. So not only were people prescribed and taking it and then getting refills and whatever, but kids were taking it from the parents' and grandmothers' medicine cabinets. In distressed communities like Appalachia, the other important thing to remember is as the jobs were going away, people quickly realized that if they got a doctor to write them or multiple doctors, it was called doctor shopping, which doesn't really happen anymore because of prescription monitoring. But if you got a doctor to write you a surplus amount of Oxycontin, which most of them were happy to do, you could take half and then you'll have. And it went for a dollar a milligram on the street. So an 80 milligram pill, that's $80. So it, it became a side hustle the way moonshine was in the early days. And that leads to heroin. Right, because because when the pills finally get hard to get, because the DEA starts to crack down in the late aughts, and uh, Purdue does finally reformulate, but not until 2010, then you and I may not have known that heroin and Oxycontin were chemical cousins, but the cartels knew it. So they start shipping in heroin. And it was, it's very easy, users tell me, to go from snorting a line of crushed up oxy to snorting a line of heroin. And then when that no longer keeps them from going to Dotsig, the dealers or their friends teach them how to shoot it up. And then it's right. just- And more. the cartel leaders like El Chapo, you know, get sentenced to life in prison and American jails, prisons, and Richard Sackler lives on his, in his mansion in Texas. I'll take it a step further, though, which is so El Chapo, you know, very justifiably deserves his his decades in prison. But but a, a street dealer, a kid selling weed could get 15 to 20 years for selling a bag of weed uh, in the Sacklers poison a nation and uh, are out living their their best lives in Palm Beach and Austin in London. So, Beth, you mentioned the uh, kind of tightened rules that the FDA has implemented regarding prescription tracking. What else have they done to address the kind of the opioid crisis? Because by all reporting, it continues virtually unabated. So the they didn't really, the FDA doesn't really have much to do with prescription monitoring programs. Those are mostly controlled by state uh, medical boards and whatnot. We think they need to do a lot more with the revolving door. What's happened is since the Reagan era of deregulation and and partly kind of ironically in response to HIV AIDS crisis, when the activists were saying, hey, too many regulations, we've got to get these antiretroviral drugs on the market. So the FDA can't keep up. Reagan defunds the the FDA. And um, what you have now is the drug approval budget being paid for largely by user fees. That is the pharma industry. And that is what um, we would like to see stopped. What's happening now is, is, you know, this became a heroin epidemic around 2010, 2012, and then more recently it's fentanyl. And so what we need to do is we need to work on getting people the help they need. We need to work on this 90% treatment gap. So in the last year, the two plus million folks with opioid use disorder, only 10% 
of them have been able to, to get treatment in the last year. And that's because of stigma. That's, and, and that goes right back to Richard Sackler saying, you know, when reports of crime break out in Appalachia, I want you to hammer the abusers. It's, it's the people that are misusing our good drug who are the criminals and the culprits. And so when we continue to stigmatize people with OUD, we're blaming the wrong person. We should be blaming the Sacklers, not them. Okay, one final character we've got to mention before we let you go, who plays a, a role, is Rudy Giuliani. Uh, so uh, please tell us about Rudy Giuliani's role here and what that tells us more broadly about the kind of legal firepower that these big companies can um, exercise and uh, and basically, um, you know, intimidate federal regulators. Yeah. And real quick, before I get into Giuliani, fentanyl is so dangerous that a kid can take a pill that's been given to them at a party uh, and it has uh, a much more fentanyl in it than or, or that you don't even know fentanyl's in it. You're told it's a Vicodin or something, but that there's actually fentanyl and it could kill it can kill someone. There's a new program called One Pill Kills. So for, for any parents out there listening to this, let your kids know that if they're given stray pills at a party, do not take them. It's, it's incredibly dangerous at this point. There was a, in Los Angeles uh, about a month ago, a group of people did cocaine, but it had fentanyl in it and three of them died. So it's, it's just, it's, these are really dangerous times, particularly with fentanyl. Um, so now Rudy Giuliani. Um, so Rudy was hired by, by the Sackler family in Purdue Pharma in 2002. Um, I'm guessing that coincided with the start of the grand jury, which I'm guessing that they had found out there was a secret grand jury taking place uh, down in Abingdon, Virginia. So they hired him. This is uh, 2002 Rudy Giuliani, not 20. 20 Rudy Giuliani, where he's uh, uh, America's hero, one of the most respected people in the country. Um, magazine than, man of the year. After magazine man of the year. You know, he has a consulting firm now. And, and so they hired him to be their advocate, and he's able to advocate to the highest levels of the Justice Department and the highest levels of the White House. Um, and there was a sense by a number of people, because there was pressure on the U.S. attorney, John Brownlee, to plead down to misdemeanors instead of felonies. We show all this in the show uh, almost exactly as it happens, by the way. And there are certainly people that were in the Justice Department, in Maine Justice, that were outraged uh, that they were able to plead down to misdemeanors. In fact, that leaked memo that was leaked to us was the fraud unit memo that said that the, the, his name was Kirk Ogroski had read the prosecution memo and he approved felony charges and recommended to pursue felony charges against these individuals, right? So there are people that are around that memo that were outraged. And uh, many of them, I've been able to speak to a number of them, so is Beth. And there certainly was a strong sense among them that Giuliani's lobbying in 2006, when he was the front runner for the Republican nomination, had an effect on getting Maine Justice, specifically the Deputy Attorney General, uh, Paul McNulty, to pursue, to, to advocate or pressure for misdemeanors instead of felonies against the individuals. That was a theory of multiple people within the Justice Department. And others have denied it. 
That certainly tells us a lot about how Washington works and um, and no doubt continues to work. There is uh, some revolving door and uh, yeah, political pressure. The other question I have was, is the Giuliani-Purdue chicken scene accurate? Is that also true? Oh, that's, the, that's the Comey. It's Comey. Oh, Comey. Sorry, Giuliani. right. Yeah, yeah. Uh, that scene is 100% accurate. Maybe not as quite clipped in its snappy pace, uh, but that is exactly <laughs> what happened. They were brought in. Yeah, they were brought in early on to, to explain their case to Comey, and he thought that they were pursuing Frank Purdue, not Purdue Farm. <laughs> The series is called Dope Sick. It is uh, dark, as I said before, but absolutely brilliant and powerful. And it is based on the book, Dope Sick, Dealers, Doctors, and the Drug Company That Addicted America. Its author is Beth Macy, and the maker of Dope Sick series is Danny Strong. Thank you both. Yeah, thank you. This was great. Mm-hmm. 